Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! You remember that we mentioned earlier that in the writings of um, the early Talmud and the Midrash, we have a reference to Joseph who had come in the latter days. We now find that we have it also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think before we're through, we're going to um, find that when Joseph uh, made his prophecies concerning the latter days, <clears throat> that those became very widespread traditions. And I think we're going to find them in a lot of places other than than in the scripture. Now you did from 121 up to 163. I covered a little bit of this one chapter last time, but I want to review it very quickly to make sure I hit all the points that uh, you might be asked about. I, can, I might start by saying, do you have any questions on this part? Good, I guess the text is clear. I might just ask you why Jacob was afraid to go into Egypt, even though his son had asked him to come and uh, they were going to be rescued from the famine. Anybody, any doubt in anybody's mind about why he was frightened about going down? <clears throat> what was it that assured him that it was all right to go? The Lord, okay. All right. Anyone want to make a contribution there? Any suggestions? Pardon? Um, Goshen, right. As nearly as we can tell, he was trying to set it up so that the Pharaoh would continue with his original thought that they would have Goshen. Remember, originally the Pharaoh said, bring him down, you can have Goshen. Well, that's a land for shepherds, ideal as far as Joseph was concerned. So he wanted them to emphasize, as nearly as we can tell in interpreting that scripture, he wanted his brothers to assure the Pharaoh that that would be just a lovely place for them to be. Then they wouldn't mix with the Egyptians. That was very important to Joseph that they not mix in. They stay separate as a people. Now, um, how many were in the trek? How many came down? Uh, 70 in the Old Testament, 75 in the New, and we usually settle for 75. In addition to that, there were many herdsmen and other people who probably were ultimately counted in as part of Israel. Question? Just the sons and their families. Right. And um, then it's kind of interesting that when he went to the Pharaoh, he only presented his father and his five brethren, and we don't have any idea why the rest weren't there. And uh, he coached them on what they should say, and they did. And um, it was interesting that when the Pharaoh talked to uh, Father Jacob, he said, How old art thou? And Jacob uh, said, 
The days of the years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. Few and evil. And have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. Now, when did his father die? Isaac. hundred and eighty. And his grandfather, hundred and seventy-five. So he's just a young feller, really, at a hundred and thirty. And he's going to die at 147, so he has how many years to live in Egypt? 17 more years that he'll live. Now, you have a typographical error on page 126, <clears throat> where it says Isaac thought he was through at the age of around 110. Isaac was 117 at the time that he thought he was through. Let's see, has you got your Bible there handy? My suitcase wouldn't hold it, so I didn't bring it. Let me just double-check that, because I, I put a little note to myself out here at the side, and uh, let me just check that 27, 27 and 10, before you change your book. There, this is the kind of a book in which it's possible to make a million typo errors, and you really have to watch it. No. Yeah, you change that to 117 instead of 110. Thank you. Now, this is kind of interesting that where they settled was called what? It was called Goshen, but what city? How about Ramesses? Um, the land of Ramesses. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them possession of the land of Egypt in the best of the land of the land of Ramesses. Now, in the days of Moses, you're going to have this Ramesses built into a treasure city. And the king Ramesses, Ramesses II, is going to live down around 1300 B.C. and or 1250. And for in nearly all your Bible commentaries, they've got Moses way down there near the time of Ramesses rather than up in the 1415 century. And they, they use the 430-year figure plus Ramesses to decide that around 1250 was the period for Moses. And the Ten Commandments, therefore, makes a very serious historical error in having um, the competitor against Moses, Ramesses II. Um, and they put it in that whole historical setting. When I pointed that out to Mr. DeMille after the picture was all finished, well, he says, next time you Mormons do it. He said, you know this man better, you know the setting better. He said, I only had that much to go on, but he said, very obviously, you know much more about Moses than other people. And he says, next time, do it. Do it right. He said, I did it the very best I could. Spent a million dollars alone in research for this picture. But he said, if I'm, if I'm wrong on Ramesses, and apparently I was, my whole story collapses. So you, he says, do it again. You, you, you folks do it. <laughs> That'll be the day. Now, I mentioned to you before that uh, there was a very definite reason why Joseph did not want the people to just stand and, and receive handouts unless they actually were starving. Um, he made them buy the material and then distribute it to their families and relatives so that those who had means um, finally ended up without any money. Then they sold what? Cattle. See, that's nearly all an agrarian society. And then last of all, they sold their land. And um, then in final desperation, once their land was gone, they had no land to live on, where did uh, he move them? He brought them into the um, 
the urban areas so that he could control the distribution better. And it was a desperation uh, effort, definitely. But he did bring them through. That's the main thing. Then as soon as the famine was over, he gave them two things. What was it? He gave them back their land and some seed on condition that they pay in their, as their taxes. How much? And you remember we pointed out that that's a lot better than 50%, which is about the way we run in our modern nations. And Sweden, it's 58%. In this nation, it's not quite up to 50 but when we did research on it, we found out they weren't sure because we've got a lot of hidden taxes that we pay. And uh, if they had the value-added tax, if we ever get that, we, we're as bad off as Sweden. We'll be paying up around 55 to 60% taxes. Um, so the people of Israel finally become established. And uh, then as Jacob approached the end of his life, he made uh, uh, his son take a, an oath by putting his hand under his thigh. What did Joseph Smith say it really should be? Under his hand. Will you swear? Put your hand on my hand. Now swear. Now he changed it in one place and not in the other, but that's because he n never completed the text. But the fact that he did correct it in one place tells us what the real answer is. Uh, it's, uh, the, let's see, Joseph gives this phrase, under my thighs, under my hand, in Genesis 24 and 2. But in Genesis 47 and 29, it's, it's left. Note on page 129. So Joseph said, Yes, Father, I will do as thou hast said. And uh, the old gentleman then felt better. Now, as we mentioned last time, when Ephraim, uh, as soon as Jacob obviously was reaching near the end of his life and very sick, uh, the two sons were brought. Who was old, the oldest son of Joseph? Second son. And who was the, the heir? Ephraim. Now that might be a source of pride to Ephraimites thinking they have something over on the sons of Manasseh. Uh, but as it turns out, why we actually are brethren in a common cause, uh, we have the same inheritance and it's like husband and wife. Uh, for the sake of order, one is put above the other, but that's all that it suggests and indicates. And uh, I had one of my students who is a descendant of Manasseh say in my other class, uh, that, doesn't that sort of make us second-class citizens, not any more than it makes a wife a second-class partner? No, it's just first among equals. It has nothing to do with the quality. And uh, both of the descendants of um, Joseph, both branches, have tremendous responsibilities in these last days. And our object is to work together, not to dominate one another. Now, as we mentioned, Ephraim, uh, Ephraim replaced which son? Reuben. Manasseh replaced Simeon. Fine. It's kind of uh, interesting to get all these little things straightened out in your mind. You'll find that when they come up in Priesthood and Relief Society, there's great confusion on these subjects. And since they are clarified in the Scriptures, they ought to be very precise in, in our minds. Um... So these two boys got their blessings. Now Jacob blessed all of his sons, and what I usually ask you is, who were the two sons that got the great blessings? Who? Joseph and Judah. Joseph and Judah. And of course, uh, then they passed down onto their sons. It's interesting what he said about Reuben, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. 
because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou defilest it. Mm, that's the end of that. And uh, Simeon and Levi kind of got a blessing together. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And Simeon, when it gets its uh, assignment, locale, is spread all over, just like Levi. It was given a territory, all right, but ended up... Um, uh, they never were uh, uh, together as a people. And, of course, Levi was deliberately spread around among the tribes, physically with no inheritance. So that, that literally came true. And then Judah is blessed that the uh, crown will never depart, that is, the throne will never depart from him until the Messiah comes. And that's, that was the situation. Judah did remain the dominant political tribe until the Christ came through them. To the, to the political... Yes. Uh, it isn't in the scripture, and, and chapter 38 of Genesis is a very challenging chapter, because obviously Judah as a man, as a person, uh, was really fouled up in his personal life, much as Simeon and Reuben, really. But something happened to reconcile him, and it's not in the scripture, we just don't know. But anyway, this was the blessing that came to his descendants. And they are a, a, a most unusual people. I stand in amazement as I watch what they've done in Israel and, um, and what they've done everywhere. And in their state of apostasy, it's, uh, it's astonishing that without re reference to any religious base, they uh, take all of the religious ideals and hold them together. That is the continuity of their people, the necessity of, of Israel being restored, and yet they do that completely on an irreligious basis. You talk to them, and they're nearly all agnostic. Nearly all of them. And that's a great shock to our people who go on tour, because they start talking the prophets and how this is being fulfilled, and, and they're conditioned against that right now. They just turn right off when you start talking the prophets, and this is a fulfillment of prophecy. But archaeology, oh, they love it. They go out and put, over, put on coveralls after working in a court or uh, over a diamond uh, press all day and, and uh, go out and dig for archaeology because the Bible said the town was there. We will find the town, and they do. But from a religious standpoint, the Spirit has not yet touched them. But President Lee did open up the first... Um, branch of the church, official branch of the church. They've actually been meeting, the saints have been meeting there for quite a little while, but they now have an official branch of the church organized by President Lee just a couple of months ago. Mike? That's interesting, never thought of that. Well, something happened to put Judah back in favor again, at least sufficient to get this blessing. Yes. Any idea as to why? No, I don't, really. Uh, I don't have any reason, uh, except it was all planned in the pre-existence this way. But the two tribes are to have the spiritual and political authority during the millennium. And it looks as though the political authority is basically out of the New Jerusalem, the spiritual authority coming out of Old Jerusalem. The word of the Lord, the law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
And so you'd think it would be the other way around, with Ephraim spiritual and the Jewish people um, political, but that's not the way the Lord set it up. The, these, the, wicked, the wicked Jews. The strange thing about you see, the Jews were the Christians. The Jews became the Christians and the crucifiers. Gentiles had nothing to do with that. You had the Jewish people becoming apostles and, and the Jewish wicked doing the crucifying. And at Armageddon, you're going to have half the people slain because of the wickedness, and the other half become rulers of the world after they've been uh, uh, cleansed as a people. So you've got a real combination there. It's one of the penalties that brilliant people have. Lucifer's found that out. He got up so high and so brilliant that he thought maybe he had a better scheme than the Father himself and began to lust for his power as God. Uh, so brilliant people run risks of being tempted sometimes to go beyond their rightful place. So among the Jewish people, there will be the righteous and the wicked combined, just as there are among the Ephraimites. Now, Joseph really got the blessing. He would be a very fruitful bough, and it would run over the wall. He would be vile, uh, valiant in times of war. Uh, there, there's a great spirit like Captain Moroni, General Moroni, General Mormon, Moses, Joshua. What was Joshua? What tribe's Joshua from? The leader of all the military of Israel. Yeah, he's an Ephraimite. He's the tribe of Joseph. Okay? And uh, his inheritance would be very productive, and he would be blessed on the great deep. That undoubtedly refers to Lehi's tremendous... Um, travels. Now, after speaking in Las Vegas a um, week ago, I guess it was a week ago Saturday, a man came up to me and, uh, see, was it Las Vegas or San Diego? Anyway, no, it was San Diego. San Diego. Uh, he came up to me and uh, said, now I have the evidence and proof that uh, Lehi didn't, uh, didn't, and Nephi didn't go across the Pacific. They went across the Atlantic. They came this way. Well, I said, that's fine. You send me the paper. I'll be real interested to see that. But he, should, he told me a few things, and I, I don't think it holds up, but I'll be very happy to take a hard look at it because you can follow the route across, the Sada, uh, across Arabia, etc., and everything in the Book of Mormon would indicate the, that the West Coast was the place of first landing. Yes. Yes, they had very little experience with ships until 1000 B.C., and then they began to become a mariners from then on. Uh -huh. That's interesting, that they would have been blessed uh, in a secular way. Very good. And they would have a great posterity. Now, when we start numbering the tribes in your next assignment, you're going to find that uh, Ephraim is right up there, and so is Manasseh. They're as big as two or three of the other tribes put together. And then Joseph received the famous birthright blessing. Did Benjamin receive much of a blessing? Benjamin ever get much of a blessing? Not, not too much. In spite of the fact Jacob loved him, there wasn't really too much um, that he was able to promise him. Then we have the death of Jacob and that marvelous funeral procession with the Pharaoh saying, Why, of course, take your father back up to the cave of Machpelah and bury him, and I'll have all the dignitaries from the court accompany you. And uh, it was such a big entourage that uh, what did the local people always call the, the, the location where they made their camp just before the funeral service? 
a place of Egyptian mourning or mourning of the Egyptians. So that was kind of interesting. And that must have been quite an experience for Joseph as he came back along this track, the very same one where he'd been dragged down as a uh, as a captive bond servant to be sold into slavery. Any questions now on that chapter at all? Right. Well, it wasn't really very far. It's about um, seven or eight miles distance from Machpelah, Hebron, to the place near Bethlehem. Maybe it's even ten miles. But it isn't very far. Nine, ten. Yeah, I think it's about ten. And... Um, uh, once buried in those days, the Hebrews, of course, didn't do any embalming, so once they had been buried, they usually left them there. But we have no reason, no, uh, no indication of why she wasn't uh, reinterred, but we would assume that that was the reason. Once buried, they would not disturb them. Now, as all of this family left, they had come home, they buried their father in the mountains of Hebron, they're now returning home. Will they ever see this land again? No, they don't, don't ever see it again. And um, once they got home, the brothers all feel like they're in deep trouble with Joseph because now, with their father gone, it might change their whole relationship. Did their father anticipate that? Did he tell them what to do? And it's kind of interesting how he asked them to really uh, humble themselves before Joseph. Was this embarrassing to Joseph? Terribly. In fact, it was not only embarrassing, what emotional reaction did it get? Yeah, he, 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 I cried again. Yeah, heart of a woman. Yeah, just the fact that they're all bowing down at his feet, scared to death he's going to kill them. And so he says, Brethren, up. you're putting me in the place of God? Don't do that. Now, we don't know the details of the last part of his reign. Uh, we are able to, uh, to figure that it was about how many years? About how many years did he, was he prime minister or viceroy of Egypt? Eighty. He died at the age of 110, the youngest of all the patriarchs. And um, just as he got toward the end of his life, we have that exciting disclosure, uh, which the Book of Mormon says are some of the greatest prophecies that were ever given to a prophet. So undoubtedly there's a lot more to what was given to Joseph than we actually have on the record. But the, uh, the lost prophecies of Joseph are first disclosed in the Book of Mormon in 1 Nephi where Father Lehi is reading the brass plates, excuse me, in 2 Nephi, uh, where from the brass plates he's able to tell his little son Joseph, the one born in the wilderness, about his namesake, the great patriarch Joseph. And we have uh, there Lehi saying, now, Joseph said this about Moses and Aaron and a Joseph in the latter days whose name would be Joseph and his father would be named Joseph. It's pretty exciting. Then a few years later, not very many years later actually, Joseph Smith is revising under the inspiration of God the Bible and filling in material that's been lost. And uh, in the first six chapters of Genesis, he doubled the contents of the text. There's twice as much in our Pearl of Great Price version of the first six chapters as there is in, the, in Genesis. Then when he gets over to the 50th chapter of Genesis, 
he finds himself once again being described by the great prophet Moses. And who's Moses quoting? Where'd he get all of this? Sure, he dug it out of Joseph, who, who lived just... Uh, I mean, Joseph was a contemporary with Moses' grandfather. Who was Moses' grandfather? Levi, Joseph's brother, older brother. Yes? Uh, yes, we know he did at least part of the time. Some, it would depend on whether he could get through or not. Um, when he got the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, for example, um, he was so amazed that the fifth verse, that, that verse in the fifth chapter of John would say that everybody's resurrected. He, then, he had it of the Spirit, he says. It was confirmed that that was true, and he couldn't understand it because they didn't think good, uh, wicked people were resurrected, just the righteous. And the vision opened then without the Urim and Thummim, but most of the time he was using the Urim and Thummim in those early days. In 1842, the Lord gave him an ultimatum on the practicing of patriarchal order of marriage, which he'd postponed and hesitated to enter into. And so Hiram said, well, why don't you record the revelation? We'll get the Urim and Thummim, let's record the revelation. This tells us that Joseph Smith didn't give back the Urim and Thummim, of course. No, he said, I don't need the Urim and Thummim. I, can, I, can, I have that revelation. And so he recorded the 132nd section without the Urim and Thummim. The last time the Urim and Thummim then is referred to is about 1860. And uh, it's, it's, it's the most sacred artifact on the face of the earth today. And therefore, the most precious. And therefore, not mentioned anymore. That got what? Uh, oh, yes. There were two books that will come to that in our next uh, assignment. There were two books that were brought up from the archives of Egypt. One, the writings of Joseph, and one, the, the um, writings of Abraham. He translated enough of the book of Joseph to know what it was, and it, it uh, went right up to the judgment. Right up to the judgment. So it told probably everything that the one-third, or the two-thirds of the Book of Mormon tells. Prophetic history of the world. In fact, Joseph is said to have remarked on one occasion, if I translate all of the book of Abraham and all of the book of Joseph, it will be as big as the Bible. It will be just as much as the Bible. Uh, no, we don't have either one of the scrolls yet. No, that's taken from the dictionary of the, uh, the Egyptian language by the prophet. We have that. See, we, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, it's not in his handwriting, but uh, as the Lord would tell him what a certain hieroglyph meant, why well, he'd write it out. We have that dictionary and explanations that go with it. That's in our possession. Now, <clears throat> the very fact that Joseph, that these two prophecies, or these lost prophecies, occur in two different places, one in our Bible and one quoting it out of the plates of Laban, tells us what the plates of Laban really are. Uh, the plates of Laban is really the family scripture of the tribe of Joseph, uh, handed down from father and son, the last one to have it being Laban, a direct descendant of Joseph. And then the Lord transfers it over to America through another descendant of Joseph, namely uh, Lehi. 
So this was their family scripture, which they had put on plates of brass. And I thought it'd be interesting to you to see the 50th chapter of Genesis compared to Second Nephi so that you could compare the two texts side by side with reference to the things they discussed. And you'll notice that sometimes uh, uh, there, one will not even mention what the other did. Other times they're very similar. But I thought it'd be nice to present them there in, in parallel. Now, in your examination, you will be asked to remember something about the lost prophecies concerning Moses. And I might ask you to mention six or seven things, a few things anyway, um, right off. Can you remember some things that we wouldn't, uh, that no one would have known in Joseph's day without revelation? What are some of the things? The name of Moses name of his brother Aaron that he would divide the Red Sea that he would be raised by the Pharaoh's daughter slow of speech but very good at writing great lawgiver they'd have a rod by which he could do marvelous things as though the power in the rod of course which it were not but anyway by that symbol he would do great things well, that, uh, th those are the kind of things to just kind of keep in mind. I'm sure that won't be hard. And uh, he knew the Lord would personally inscribe the law for Moses by the finger of his own hand. That was also known to Joseph. Then Joseph knew all these uh, total of 22 things about his own descendants and about Joseph, and I might ask you to come up with six or seven of those. Uh, those are details that are rather marvelous because they're about us and our time. Now, I think I've discussed uh, before the fact that the Jews are expecting Joseph to prepare the way for the coming of their Messiah. As I mentioned earlier in the class, we're even finding this now in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well as the Talmud and the Midrash. This means that Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, probably had disseminated this information widely enough so that a lot of people knew about it. Now, it was kind of interesting that Dr. Klausner because this isn't in the scripture, he tried to rationalize it away. He tried to get rid of it. He tried to say uh, maybe it was a superstition that was introduced by the tribe of Joseph, you know, kind of get in on the act with, with Judah. Um, but it would have been such a pleasure to have gotten over there before he died and, and let him know that Joseph of the latter days had come. Messiah ben Joseph was here. That would have been a, a great privilege. Don't know whether it would have done any good or not, but it would have been fun to try it. Why were the Samaritans so interested in this tradition about a Joseph coming in the latter days? Yeah, they, they were remnants of the original uh, tribes and claimed to be Ephraimites themselves. And did they say through which branch of Joseph this latter-day prophet would come? Yeah, through their Ephraim. Mm -hmm. So you see how the Jewish scholars thought, boy, this really was a self-serving myth that had been developed by the folks up in the mountains. Now it's interesting that they said now his mission will come at the same time as the prophet Elijah and he will rise up shortly before the coming of Shiloh, the great Messiah Ben David. He will be a descendant of Joseph through Ephraim and he would be killed by the anti-Messianic forces. That was real amazing how many details they picked up. Now I've suggested to you the possibility 
that these prophecies were stripped out of the Bible sometime after 600 B.C. and after the Jews had gone into apostasy uh, because they, they, somebody deliberately took them out. And prior to that time, they, they had killed anybody who would talk about the messianic uh, prophecies of the first coming. They got rid of the book of Zenos and Zenoch and Isaiah and Nehemiah. But as we've mentioned before, they fortunately left the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which tells all about the Christ. So does part of the 52nd refer to him. These are the passages where it says Christ will not be very handsome. That's kind of a surprise. That's in one of our hymns that uh, he's not beautiful of countenance, but rather an ordinary looking person, actually. No special charisma, you know, to say, oh, there goes the that magnificent specimen of manhood they call the Messiah. No, he was humble. He even came through an illegitimate descent, Bathsheba being his maternal ancestress along with David, born in a manger, uh, raised in poverty as the great judge of all the world. Um, his humility, his passing beneath all things uh, was in even... Uh, captured in, the, in his birth and in his lineage. Every element of humility is in the ancestry and the life of the Christ. Do you have any questions about Dr. Josef Klausner of Hebrew University or any part of that material? This is the first time any of that material appears in, in uh, any of our church or any of our LDS literature. Uh, yes, he just uh, he wrote his book in about 1927 and 28, and it was translated into English in 1955 and published by the Macmillan Company. And as I recall, he died about 1954. Excuse me, 64. About I'll have to verify the date of his death, but it hasn't been very long. And I had already been to Israel twice before his death, but I didn't know about this. I picked it up later but just barely, just right after he had died at the time I put it in the book. Let's see, where are we now on page what? 163, question 7, 17. What does Dr. Klausner say is disappointing to him in the Jewish gathering thus far? Any of you pick that up? Yes. Right. Dr. Klausner said to, see, they were nearly all communists, or democratic socialists when they came. Nearly all the Jews in the ghettos had subscribed to the collectivist ideas of Marx. Now Marx hated the Jews. He was Jewish himself on both sides, but hated them. And I don't know of anybody who's written more vicious, um, depraved language against the Jews than Karl Marx in his um, uh, um, papers that he first wrote in Paris. But um, his ideas greatly appealed to the atheistic Jewish mind, the agnostic Jewish mind. Because if you could just get people together and get intelligent persons in charge to get people to do what they ought to do, that just seemed ought to be a good idea. And furthermore, the, the communists moved into the ghettos and did more to help them get their rights than anybody. So many of the very earliest settlers, including David Ben-Gurion, whose name used to be David Green, came as communists down there and immediately set up communes and immediately pooled all their property. And Dr. Klausner said these are materialistic concepts 
that will prove disappointing to you. So by the time I got over there in 62, 1962, I talked to them about their kibbutzim, which is plural for the kibbutz, and they said that these little communes were going to be abandoned, that they were not efficient, they were not effective, that they'd been good for paramilitary purposes, but that's all. And that they therefore were going to go free enterprise all the way with a competitive system. And David Ben-Gurion was very complimentary of Ezra Taft Benson because he'd gotten them to sell all of their public housing. Uh, when the refugees came pouring out, the government built all these houses and they would immediately go to slums. They were trampy, they, they, they were just uh, real ghettos. And so when Brother Benson was over there, he suggested to Ben-Gurion that they sell them as condominiums. And immediately they improved. As soon as everybody owned their own house, their own apartment, they immediately began painting them and fixing them up and taking care of them. So, and then he also told them how to use their land more effectively. So David Ben-Gurion has always been a great um, admirer of Ezra Taft Benson, who helped them get out of some of these things that Dr. Klausner said will not work. Does that help? Okay. Socialist thought, you see, theoretically is beautiful because we all work together as a family. Isn't that nice? And uh, when the Founding Fathers went to Plymouth, they thought that they could do it. And they were Christian-motivated people. But that old human quality came out just like it does on our welfare projects. Some do and some don't. And some get up in the morning and some loll around, but when it comes to dishing out the goodies, the ones that did the least have the biggest tub <laughs> for their share. And that's not because they're particularly evil people, they're just human beings, and folks are that way. So Governor Bradford uh, finally says, look, Plato and these men thought they were wiser than God, which shows that he understood that under God's system, each has his own property and his own stewardship and is supposed to improve it. And so that's really what Dr. Klausner was talking about. He says this communal property concept is against the prophets. Now it's interesting that while in Israel they're moving away from collectivism, here in the United States we're moving toward it at a very rapid rate. Not having the government take over the property so much as just simply control it completely. We have a 90 acre farm and I just got a real hot letter from the Department of Agriculture telling, threatening to take away all of any um, a stipend that, we, that that property used to, to get if I don't fill out the forms and commit myself to suspend uh, planting on certain acreage. So I will write them a polite note and tell them, thank you for advising me of my jeopardy. I will not be participating in this program. <laughs> when Brother Benson was Secretary of Agriculture, he got everybody he could to disassociate with these subsidies and by the time he left the Department of Agriculture, he had 70% of all agriculture in the United States free and independent of the government, which isn't the case anymore. Okay.